0: All right, can you see my screen? Let's see some nods or thumbs or anything. Yes, perfect, great. So thank you to uh, the organizers for inviting me um, to our virtually inviting me to talk about um, this paper, which is joint work uh, with Alex Odol and Christian Catalini and was part of my dissertation. Um, And as the title already says, we're going to be looking at co-working in close proximity. And focusing on peer learning and, and startup performance outcomes. Um, specifically what this paper is about or what we're trying to do with this paper is to further our understanding about the relationship between physical proximity and knowledge transfer outside the traditional boundaries of the firm. So this is important to keep in mind we're not looking within a firm but between um, firms. And this has been notoriously difficult to examine given a lack of micro level data and also the non-random placement of firms. Um, But what we do know in general so far is that the diffusion of ideas is highly localized or appears to be so, and that especially the more tacit know-how is transferred by face-to-face interactions between individuals, which points towards the importance of actually being close together. And there's also, a host of uh, research that is supporting this with empirical findings um, and indicates that the extent to which physical, physical proximity explains information flows can really depend on as, on as little as a few hundred meters. And here I borrowed this from Bill Kerr, so credit where credit is due. Um, these two papers really nicely show how um, the effects of distance kind of decay very quickly with as little as um, 700 uh, meters or even one to five miles. So these are different papers that show this. But um, while physical proximity is one of the more salient characteristics of distance that affects knowledge exchange, there are also other um, distances that um, can facilitate or impede knowledge transfer and um, exchange. One is the social the other is the knowledge space and the product market dimensions. So these these have been shown to both um, like kind of promote the desire or also the ability to um, exchange knowledge. But we don't really know how these interplay with physical proximity. So do these augment the value of geographic uh, proximity or do they diminish the value of physical proximity? And so in this paper, what we're going to explore is precisely these relationships. So our first uh, prediction is really more based, it's almost a replication of what we know is that physical proximity will have a positive influence on peer learning. And the other prediction we have is that social and the physical proximity, that these dimensions seem to actually be more substitutes because people who are, or or firms that are similar in the social dimension anyways, are likely to interact no matter what, and the physical may not really help that much more. In terms of knowledge space, we predict that this will be a U-shaped relationship, given that if you are completely different and have no um, knowledge overlap at all, it's gonna be hard to share or learn from each other. But if you completely overlap, even if you're close, you're not really gonna learn much more. In terms of product market, it could go in any way. So it could be precisely because you're close, you can't keep up these barriers of knowledge flowing and spillovers. So because you're close, you're going to um, share more, or it could be because you're close, you're going to try even harder to stop um, people from learning from each other. So this is what we're. Go- these are the ideas we're going into this project with. Um, The context, we believe, is a very relevant and important one because we're looking at learning among nascent firms. And we think this is particularly important because, or given findings that indicate that learning from fellow entrepreneurs is especially important. Um, And this is even more um, crucial given that entrepreneurs operate in fast-paced and uncertain environments, which makes local search and these really frequent adjustments and experimentation Um, especially important. And from this, what we think is that simply being close to other entrepreneurs facing similar problems may reduce these costs of accessing relevant information um, because they can see it from other firms and or, or can learn it from the others by being in the same space. All right, to give you a preview of the results in case anyone has to leave earlier or I don't finish on time, Uh, What we do find is that the physical um, dimension has a positive impact on peer learning and I'll show you in a moment how we do that. We also find that the social proximity and physical proximity seem to be substitutes in terms of knowledge space, we also see this U shape relationship. And in terms of product market dimensions, we also find similar to the social dimension that these seem to be seem to be substitutes. In addition, uh, we also find that common spaces seem to extend the effect of proximity. This finding I think is very fascinating because we could apply this also to virtual spaces. Uh, Interaction amongst proximate firms is a viable mechanism and I'll show you in a moment how we actually get at that. And we also find that learning from proximate firms has implications for firm performance. So it's not just that you're—it's easier to learn from them, but this also helping you achieve certain uh, startup miles, um, milestones. All right. So, where do we get all these findings from? Uh, let me briefly explain the context and the data that's underlying this study. So we got this information from back then. It was the fourth largest co-working coworking um, space in the USA, and here entrepreneurs or startups are allocated to four different floors. There are about 200 rooms, and our observations span about 30 months. The average age of the startups is about a year. Here we have the characteristics of the rooms. Uh, We also uh, looked at business models and also the gender composition of the companies. Female equal to one is um, if there is a female in in the startup. Um, and we also looked at their technology usage and if they had received any very high, highly visible award. And the way we measure um, learning is using web technology adoption. And the reason we did that is because the startups in our sample are ma- primarily software and um, online based startups. So for them, technology usage is extremely important um, and can be seen, um, well, it, it has, and the decision which technology use also has long, um, like, long-term consequences. It's fairly path-dependent. And the interesting thing of the data we use, we can see exactly when they started using it and when they stopped using uh, a certain technology. The data we got from Built with. And just to give you an idea of what this means, web technologies, I picked the top uh, runners or the in the subcategory of error tracking. And here on the left uh, with the B, this is Bugsnag. This is the this is used by Airbnb Lyft MailChimp. In the middle, we see Honey Badger, which is used by eBay, NetSanity, and Kickstarter. And on the on the far on the right, we have Rollbar, which is used by Salesforce, Uber, and Kayaks. So it's not apparent why you would use one or the other, you really have to learn this from others and understand how this fits the needs of your specific startup. In terms of the empirical approach, so our analysis on the startup dyad level on the same floor. And here we estimate the effect of distance on the count of technologies firm I adopts from firm J that firm J had already adopted. So this is really important um, to keep in mind. We also look at the probability that Firm i adopts the technology Firm j has already used, and um, just to give you the, the, um, the estimation, uh, x is, uh, or y is the web technology adoption measure I just explained to you, x is a vector of diet specific controls, and then I include um, Firm i at times room fixed effects as well as Firm j times room fixed effects here. Now, naturally, as I already mentioned, there are really big concerns in terms of endogeneity when it comes to looking at proximity, firm location choice, et cetera, and also in the context of peer learning. And to address these concerns, we rely on the natural room, uh, random room assignment of these startups in the co-working space. And we also follow recent work um, and produce dyadic robust standard errors to make sure that it's not because of the specific neighborhood you're in, um, what we're finding. So in terms of room assignment, lucky for us, we were able to, even when we regress uh, dyad specific characteristics on distance, there doesn't seem to be an impact. So this was a sanity check for us. Um, In terms of physical proximity, and I'm just for a purpose of um, yeah, of brevity, just going to show you the graphs. What we see is that those that are very close, there's a strong impact of proximity on uh, technology adoption. And I really want to stress that our um, emitted variable is a different floor. So, what you're seeing here is that if you aren't very close, so within 20 meters, this is what our first quartile is capturing, you may as well be in a different floor. Um, so, I think this is a very strong and important result. For robustness, we also did a randomized inference, or used in a randomized uh, randomization inference method to check that this isn't just like, you know, some spurious correlations that we're finding. And we used the Monte, Monte Carlo simulation and randomized closeness between each diode and estimated the likelihood of adopting a, te- a technology as a function of closeness. Again, lucky for us, we found that only two of the simulated draws had a coefficient greater than the point estimate we had. Which uh, equals a randomized inference p value of um, 0, 0, 2, 0, 0, 0.002. Now, in terms of the interplay of other proximity dimensions, I already highlighted these before, but just so that you can see what we actually did, we measured social proximity looking at um, if firms had both a very salient characteristic that only a minority of the firms in the co working space had. This is if they're major- majority female or both have. Uh, are successful, so I've received a very um, visible award. In terms of knowledge space, we looked at their pre-period technology overlap, and for product market proximity where well, we looked at their industry and business models and if they have the same ones. What we find here um, is that, as I mentioned, there's a negative interaction between close and both social dimensions, as we can see here in columns one and two. Columns three shows the product market uh, dimension. Also, the interaction is negative. And importantly, what I really wanna stress here is the composite index of being completely different provides the flipped around uh, impact. So here the interaction is positive, which suggests that those that benefit the most from being close are those firms that are very different from each other. Uh, in terms of knowledge space, I already mentioned that we find this u shaped relationship. So those that um, have a fairly low but not zero um, overlap in terms of technology are those, again, that seem to benefit the most from being physically close. And I already mentioned plausible mechanisms. Um, here, what we, what we thought of, like I mentioned before, um, is this really interpersonal interaction that's going on. And one way we could look at that was to find places with a heightened likelihood of individuals engaging in conversation. And here we exploit a joint event, a lunch that um, takes place every Friday at this co-working space and look how physical proximity affects the likelihood of attending these events and in what order people check into this lunch. And as we can see here, we find that um, proximity increases the joint attendance, the number and the likelihood of attending an event and conditionally on jointly attending an event, it also increases the event um, check in line proximity, as you can see here with one within one person two, five people, whereas within 10 and 25 people servers are um, placebo tests, so to speak. In terms of performance, and uh, apologies for going over this really quickly. Um, in interest of time, I won't will not spend um, too much time on the logic of the The instrument, but both using OLS and um, IV um, estimation approaches, where the instrument is the predicted probability of adopting a technology from a proximate firm, um, we find that uh, proximity uh, or adopting has a positive impact on achieving seed funding and also funding over a million. So. To summarize, what we find is that close proximity greatly influences the likelihood of adopting an upstream production technology, also used by a peer firm. This effect decays really quickly, so after 20 meters, there doesn't seem to be any influence, and then more importantly, it's like for all those that are a little further than 20 meters, it's like they're on a different floor. Um, our results also suggest that the interplay with other proximity dimensions changes the effective distance, so this is important to keep in mind when we're engineering um, these communities and spaces. And interaction with peers is a viable mechanism driving our results, and their findings also suggest that technology adoption from proximate peers contributes to achieving these important startup performance milestones. Um, And to summarize, I'm going to use a quote from a CEO of a graduating startup at this co-working space who mentioned, we are so thankful for our time at the co-working hub. We started off as a small team in the office and all working like crazy um, to try and build a product that customers would see the value of and want to use. We found many companies that we could learn from and were um, able to establish some key relationships that provided timely advice And these relationships directly contributed to the significant growth of our startup. So, taken together, this paper informs our understanding of the scale at which peer learning among small entrepreneurial firms takes place, which is very small. Uh, We highlight important nuances in terms of the benefits from physical proximity depending on other structural, social, knowledge-based, and competition-related dimensions. And importantly, we detect that physical proximity is most crucial for supporting learning amongst firms that are otherwise distant. And where physical structure may lay the groundwork for exchange to take place, other factors may actually determine how firms enact on these presented opportunities. And who knows, maybe this will also help us figure out how to make virtual co-working spaces more effective. Um, So thank you. I think I'm on time. Um, And I really appreciate your comments later on um, and I'll stop sharing.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Um, Our next speaker will be Deepak Somaya. And I remind you that we can use the chat room to share comments uh, at the end of uh, the discussant's presentation. If we have time, we will be able to do Q and A. So Deepak, it's all yours.
2: Thank you, Gwen. I hope everyone can hear me all right. I'm going to start sharing my slides now. So I want to thank Daniel for putting together this wonderful panel. I think the papers are so nicely related to each other. In fact, I can uh, jump off directly by connecting to Mario's paper in a minute. So I I will do that. Uh, But let me first sort of introduce the paper more generally. This is a paper on external knowledge sourcing so knowledge sourcing from other firms uh and barriers to employee mobility uh so we have a somewhat paradoxical tra- take on that and i'll explain that in a minute as well uh, first i should acknowledge my co-author unkwang so uh unkwang is a doctoral student here at illinois uh, he's on the job market this year as well this is a paper from outside his dissertation uh he's on this call and that's a picture in case you want to find him um Also, uh, I'll echo Gwen's point about posting questions in chat. I will, um, I have the luxury of having Ong sort of to answer questions as we go along, uh, if if you need to. Uh, Also happy to answer the questions later myself. All right, so um, this paper really takes a look at how employee mobility barriers may affect external knowledge sourcing. And what we mean by external knowledge sourcing here is a firm building on external knowledge in its own internal innovation. Uh, And just to uh, highlight how we're going to measure it, we're going to measure it by the citation of external patents. So compared to Maria's paper, for example, this is a a paper that sort of takes a much more macro view at learning from other firms, if you will. So one of the things that we know from especially the open innovation literature is that um, learning from other firms, the outside-in part of open innovation, is something that helps firms innovate quite significantly as well. Uh, And we're trying to connect that to mobility barriers, right? So mobility barriers you could think about uh, as frictions in labor markets that might be given exogenously that prevent uh, workers from easily moving between companies. Uh, We're gonna focus here on R&D workers, but also keep in mind that while they might be exogenously provided in certain contexts and particularly when we do empirical work, we like this uh, exogeneity, This could also be a strategic variable that companies could choose. They could choose to sort of try to make their uh, workers more sticky and make it more difficult for them to move. So uh, we specifically in this case use non-competes as an example, a number of you might be familiar with what non-competes are. There are clauses essentially in labor contracts that specify which companies, which regions or jobs or technical fields an employee may move to and even sort of time periods within which they may move. So even, uh, if these employees leave the company, they're sort of prohibited by law through these non-competes from moving to other other firms. Uh, and in particular, this can be a type of mobility barrier. And we're going to leverage some uh, quasi-exogenous variation in these mobility barriers to actually test our theory. Now, uh, I would, if I were to guess, most of you are probably thinking Well, if there's barriers to employee mobility, then probably what that does is it reduces the extent of external knowledge sourcing. And so this is certainly the received view. Uh, And this is sort of the the suggestion, uh, the reason that the received view is this, and the reason that the literature suggests that employee mobility barriers may uh, limit external knowledge sourcing it's because we widely believe that mobile employees sort of play a key role in knowledge spillovers between firms. Uh, given that knowledge is very often quite tacit, uh, difficult to learn, when, when employees actually move, they're much more effective at transferring knowledge. Um, and so that's certainly true. And so the, uh, the expectation here might be that mobility barriers will decrease external knowledge sourcing. But let me use Maria's uh, very nice paper to to illustrate the point we are trying to make, right? So it's also true that there are many other ways in which knowledge might spill over between firms, right? So there could be various kinds of alliances, collaboration. Uh, Firms could choose what areas to focus on in terms of R&D. There may be customers or suppliers through which they interact. There may be all kinds of informal interactions of the type that Maria was describing uh, some of this might happen in the field. Uh, some of this might happen uh, through scientific publication. And so just to take her example, imagine these firms are in this co-working space. And if the firms are constantly worried that their employees are going to move to competing firms within that co-working space, what do you think is going to happen to the knowledge spillovers between those firms? Right? They're actually going to avoid trying to at least the, the management of those firms are going to try to impede the interaction between the employees. And they're going to sort of try to ensure that there's less, uh, less knowledge pillars because they're worried that that interaction between the employees might then become a mechanism through which they might lose their own talent. And that's the approach that we're going to take in this paper. In fact, it was the uh, hypothesis that we sort of started with. And uh, you might see from the structure of the paper that we actually just go all in on that hypothesis, although one could imagine that one can sort of think about this paper also as a competing hypothesis paper. But we're actually going to focus on just that alternative hypothesis. here. So the the key to this alternative theoretical mechanism is that external knowledge sourcing may increase the risk of losing valuable human capital. And we think that this might be true for at least two reasons. One is the more that you build as a firm on knowledge within the field more generally, what happens to the talent of your employees the human capital of your employees is that it becomes more general right in the becker sense of firm specific versus general so these employees now are more employable at other firms and therefore more valuable to other firms and so there's a higher risk of losing them but also just as importantly uh, one of the things that would that would likely happen by building on other firms knowledge is that it reduces the information fictions In the labor market so the actual actions that employees might undertake in order to learn from other firms and to use external knowledge might itself decrease information frictions so they might actually sort of interact through through other through informal mechanisms or even through formal mechanisms such as alliances and so on Uh, so that might decrease the information frictions right there but in addition the type of knowledge that they're building on uh, makes it easier for uh, other employers to actually evaluate them So if you have an employee that's building significantly on the knowledge of a a particular firm, it becomes harder for external uh, agents to actually evaluate these employees. And so there's a higher sort of level of information friction in the labor market. But if you're building on others' knowledge, it's easier to say, you know, this person is talented in the space or not so talented in the space, et cetera. So um, there's one other little tweak here, which is that uh, we expect that this kind of, effect that we just hypothesized, that mobility barriers are going to impede knowledge spillovers or external knowledge sourcing, that this is likely to be localized. And this localized effect is likely to happen for two reasons. One has to do with the localized nature of employee mobility more generally, right? So you're more worried about your employees moving to more local firms, so you're therefore more concerned about uh, sourcing knowledge from more local firms. Okay, so this is a well-established fact and i don't need to belabor the point too much uh, the other which connects with how we're actually going to measure uh, employee mobility barriers is related to non-competes and non-competes as it turns out are governed by state law and so more local moves are much more effectively impeded by uh, stronger non-competes uh, and moves between states are less likely to be impeded by them there may be some effect but nonetheless it's it's a significantly smaller effect And so uh, for both of these reasons, we expect that there's going to be a localized effect, which leads to our main hypothesis, which is that an increase in uh, mobility barriers, uh, which we measure as the enforceability of non-compete agreements, uh, will increase the extent to which firms innovate uh, by building on local external knowledge. And then we explore two other mechanisms that I won't go into great detail about, uh, but primarily just state them uh, and highlight the role that they play here. The first one is whether firms uh, essentially uh, the the strategy that they take to their human capital, whether it's one of building their own human capital or instead acquiring the human capital from other firms. So we particularly like this uh, hypothesis, which is a moderating hypothesis, uh, because it helps discriminate between the two plausible mechanisms here, right? So if you're worried about losing employees, you're more likely to be worried about that if you are a human capital builder as a firm unless uh, if you're a human capital acquirer. On the other hand, if you're essentially uh, sourcing knowledge by acquiring employees from other firms, that's your sort of primus modus operandi, uh, then the effect's going to be in the opposite direction. So if our theory or our proposed mechanism is right, then the positive impact of employee mobility on a, a, of a positive impact of employee mobility barriers on a firm's propensity to innovate, Uh, by building on local external knowledge, that is likely to be greater for firms who innovate by relying more on internally developed human capital. Uh, And then uh, we also look at other appropriability appropriability mechanisms. So one of the interesting features of our paper is that it connects to a a small but growing literature on some of the potential downsides of uh, of, uh, knowledge sourcing and open innovation more generally. Uh, generally, people focus on other appropriability mechanisms as or appropriability mechanisms more generally uh, as one of the ways that you can mitigate those downsides. So in our case as well, if you're concerned about employees moving uh, and if appropriability mechanisms other than non-competes, the, the, the barriers to employee mobility here, uh, prevent some of the harm that could occur as a result of employee mo- mobility. And in, in addition, it could also, in fact, Martin and discussant are discussing, has done some nice work showing that uh, that uh, other types of appropriability mechanisms, such as patents or, uh, or or other types of IP enforcement, might actually diminish the extent to which employees might actually move. And so, if that is true, uh, then the concerns about employee mobility that firms might have might actually be lower. Um, and so, again, we, here we are also uh, proposing that the that this effect that we're that we're expecting our main effect that's going to be greater in industries where these other mechanisms are actually weaker. So there's a substitute mechanism uh, here from other employee mobility barriers, uh, sorry, from other uh, appropriately mechanisms. So um, in terms of our research design, we uh, leverage what people call the Michigan non-compete experiment. Uh, this is something that uh, a stream of work that started with Matt Marks and colleagues in 2009, but a number of other people have also built on this. Uh, and essentially leverages a uh, somewhat unexpected change uh, in 1985 uh, of the enforceability of non-competes in the state of Michigan, uh, where uh, this enforceability was strengthened by the passage of an antitrust reform act. So the act itself was not directly focused on non-competes, hence the somewhat stronger claim of uh, plausible exogeneity. Uh, and what we do, essentially, is to leverage that change in Michigan and compare it to a bunch of other uh, comparison states. So our um, sample and our data, we, we observe or we measure all our variables at the firm level, although we'll also talk about patent level measures a little bit later in terms of our robustness checks. Uh, but essentially, we, we identify about 190 publicly traded firms uh, in Michigan and the control states we do need to measure a number of things about these firms and so we end up with a smaller number of firms at the end of the day but it turns out these firms actually uh, have more than 50 percent of the patents that are involved and we also in our patent sample go beyond uh, these 190 firms so we're looking at a five-year window on either side of that change in the uh, in Michigan uh, and use a number of different sources uh, of data to, to operationalize this uh, I won't go into the measures and instead sort of uh, jump to our sort of primary methodology here, which, as you might expect, is a diff and diff approach. Uh, and essentially, we've, we, uh, our approach is to look at the, uh, the change in this law in Michigan that's measured by that post 1985 uh, measure or dummy variable, um, and then compare that to, to comparison states. And, uh, and then our moderating variables are essentially interactions uh, on that uh, difference in difference estimator. Uh, so just to give you a little bit of an, uh, a preview of what might be happening here in the data, uh, this sort of, this particular uh, graph tracks the uh, average percentage of local external citations, uh, the blue line being Michigan uh, and the red line being uh, the other comparison or control states. And you'll see that there's sort of a fairly uh, parallel track before 1985, and then after that, the Michigan line sort of goes much more closer uh, to the, to the comparison states. We don't quite see the same uh, effect in non-local external citations. So, uh, and the, the, re- the third category would be self-citations, by the way, here. So, um, uh, and, and this is sort of consistent with our hypothesis, right? That there should be a localized effect based on our theory. So in our main results, we actually do find this effect uh, in the direction that we hypothesize that these mobility barriers actually increase uh, external knowledge sourcing. Uh, The effect is about 28% over the baseline level, so it's a not insignificant change. Uh, We also find consistent with the uh, hypothesis that tests our uh, our mechanism, so to speak, um, that firms that are human capital acquirers are less likely to be affected by this, and therefore firms that are human capital builders are more likely to be affected. And for those firms, the effect is almost 40%. And in fact, as you go towards the human capital acquisition end of things, uh, the effect essentially goes away. And then also firms that have uh, access to other appropriability mechanisms um, are less likely to be affected by this. Uh, And again, the firms that uh, have essentially no uh, or very weak appropriability mechanisms outside of, uh, of the mobility barriers, for those firms, the effect is as high as 60%. As compared to that, 28% on average. Okay, so uh, there are a large number of robustness tests that we have uh, we have done for this uh, paper. Uh, the the two that I will highlight, uh, you can read the rest if there's uh, there's time to go through that really quickly. Um, one is uh, we also use changes in other state level non compete laws after 2000. And one of the advantages of using that time period also uh, is that we can exclude examiner added citations. And so we find essentially the same results using that data. Uh, And also keep in mind that our mechanism here in this paper is that firms can source knowledge through a bunch of other mechanisms and not just through employee mobility. Uh, And these other mechanisms are more likely to be used if there are employee mobility barriers in place. So we explore one of these other mechanisms through which uh, external knowledge sourcing might occur for which we have reasonably good data. And that's to look at alliance formation between firms. Uh, And particularly if our theory is correct, we should see this effect in local alliances. And so we find that uh, MARA sort of both uh, increases the the likelihood of local alliances that's within Michigan and the number uh, of those local alliances. Uh, And then there's a whole bunch of other tests that we do, including, as I mentioned earlier, uh, patent level tests uh, and uh some of the r d riskiness measures that conti uses for example um and so on so forth all right so with that uh and there's a whole bunch of limitations nonetheless i will not uh go into those and i'll skip them for now uh and jump to contributions and conclusions here so i think one of the interesting things in our paper is that we exam we, we re-examine uh what we might think of as the uh, relationship between mobility barriers and knowledge sourcing. Uh, And we have both uh, theory and evidence that sort of challenges the conventional wisdom on this, Uh, I will highlight that we're doing this uh, for established firms. So uh, the story might be somewhat different, especially when we think about spin out formation. Um, Also, uh, what we highlight here is that uh, knowledge sourcing is related to potential employee mobility. Uh, And so there might be some drawbacks of open innovation, uh, which in prior research is largely centered on appropriation of the rents from this innovation. Uh, But we're also sort of highlighting here a downside uh, that involves human capital loss from open innovation. Uh, And then uh, we can also sort of connect here uh, human capital strategies or mobility barriers that come about due to human capital strategies and firms innovation strategies uh, and the idea that if you have more control over employee mobility this might facilitate more open innovation by firms uh, and last but not least we also show the interplay between different appropriability mechanisms uh, so other appropriability mechanisms may actually substitute for non-competes or uh, employee mobility barriers in constraining mobility and or uh, its adverse effects so let me conclude here i think i'm just about on time And we look forward to questions, both in chat and also afterwards.
1: Terrific, thank you so much, Deepak. Uh, Our next speaker is Ines.
3: Okay, hi everybody. Uh, Thank you so much to the organizers. I'm hoping that you can see my slides by now. Um, Thank you so much to the organizers for including our paper here. This is joint work with Shari Khasan, and Rem Koning. Um, so jumping really quickly into the motivation. So this paper came about really from the observation that uh, a lot of people in our networks have not acquired their jobs through applying for them. Um, and we started thinking about whether that is something that is a recent trend that is increasing in the labor market and whether it's something that we should be- pay attention to Uh, more closely. And so what we found is that, um, first of all, we we know from the literature that finding and retaining talent is a a really important task and a costly task for firms. But we also know from a really long stretch of literature all the way to the 80s, that when we think of how workers and firms match, uh, we tend to think of workers initiating, I mean, of course, the the firm posts a job, but the worker uh, or the prospective worker initiates the movement by applying to that job, and so um, this, of course, this of course implies that uh, workers are searching for jobs, but we have some recent evidence that tell tells us this is from um, last year or early last year, twenty twenty. Uh, some recent figures from the Fed uh, telling us that one in th- three uh, job switches actually come from workers that were not looking for jobs. And so this got us thinking, well, if that is the case, then uh, how are firms hiring nowadays that permits these statistics that actually don't don't, uh, match the model of uh, prospective workers applying for jobs? Uh, We started thinking about what could impact these trends. And so we found two main uh, important recent trends in the labor market that can help us uh, try to tackle, start tackling this question. One is, of course, digitization. And this uh, is something that is not new to anybody, especially after a year like the one we've had. But uh, what digitization does is it makes workers and firm job postings much more visible. So both workers can see um, a lot of a lot more job postings and therefore that decreases their uh, cost of applying this has been studied quite extensively in the past two decades but on the other hand what it also does is make workers more visible to firms and we know much less about how that has changed how firms hire so our question here really is do these uh, these trends change how firms hire and potentially then uh, see well what what um, what impact does that have in worker firm matching and of course in firm performance. Now, I should be completely clear that we are not getting at firm performance in this specific paper. The, in this paper, we're trying to document the phenomenon of firm-driven hiring. Uh, and by firm-driven hiring, what I mean is this hunting, is this the firm proactively looking for workers as opposed to waiting for workers to apply to their open job. Um, okay, so what's the evidence that we provide here? Um, we don't have causal evidence as of now. Uh, and what we do in this paper really is hinge on a theoretical model, which unfortunately, for the sake of time, I won't have time to, to go into details about, but I will tell you the main predictions that come from that model. Uh, and so we hinge on the predictions from that model and we test them with two different sets of data, one that was constructed by us, from a survey and the other one uh, from Burning Glass Technologies, which gives us um, a very large sample of HR job postings in the US. So with these two data sets, we hope to provide evidence of of a new trend or at least an increasing trend, if not new, uh, of firms hunting for talent and when and which firms seem to benefit more from this uh, hunting mechanism. So in our labor market model, uh, we look at uh, t- two sectors, so high skill and low skill. And the main uh, idea of the model is that a strong skill complementarity, or if you will, a strong dependence on highly technical skills will uh, grant hunting for talent uh, more benefit for that firm. And at the same time, if the cost of reviewing incoming applications is particularly high for a farm or for an industry, be it because they have too many applications or because exactly they are looking for a very specific type of skill set, uh, and therefore each application will need to be reviewed much more carefully, uh, this also increases the likelihood of firms wanting to engage in hunting for talent. And so, as I was saying, We use these two data sets. One is a a, a comprehensive, um, representative is what I meant, representative survey over the US working population to see how they got their jobs in 2020. Mind you, this was right before uh, COVID hit. Um, We have done a follow-up survey that has not changed the numbers that I will show you today, but the numbers that I'm showing you today are really uh, about a year ago-ish. And um, yeah, and finally then we complement with more historical data on um, the burning glass technology job postings for HR. And hopefully I'll have time to explain both. So let me go really quickly into the predictions that come from the model. So as I said, we have a theoretical model that tries to rationalize the um, and a behavior of firms. So we completely take the firm side approach here. Um, And we we try to rationalize the behavior of firms where they have two choices. They can hire their workers uh, through outbound recruiting or another way of saying this is the hunting for talent. And that means they need to spend resources looking for potential right candidates for the jobs they're looking for or they can not engage in that activity and just wait for applications to come in. And so what our comparative statics predicts um, is that profitability of outbound recruiting will increase with firms binding skill requirements. So another way of saying this is for firms that require for the job postings they're looking, um, that require very high technical skills or very specific technical skills, uh, meaning they would, they would want a sort of an off the shelf solution and hire someone that has the exact experience they're they needing. Then we expect um, from the, the model tells us that higher skilled sectors should rely more on outbound recruiting. Um, at the same time, if the cost of keeping an open vacancy is high, uh, be it because the firm is smaller, and therefore the span of control of the job posting they're hiring is much higher, or because they're less known, and usually that also correlates with small or perhaps young firms. Uh, then we should see for those uh, that hunting for talent is also more profitable. And uh, just a few more compared to statics that we that come from our model, if the firm's cost of reviewing applications is very high, we should also expect them to not rely as much as in inbound applications, but proactively look for workers. And the same thing is true and quite trivial. This is not, so this last prediction really doesn't necessarily come from the model, but, but it, it is worth mentioning that if there is a decreased cost of acquiring external information on candidates, then of course we should see firms at the margin engaging more in looking for candidates, right? So when I say decreased cost, I mean the availability of platforms such as LinkedIn or for certain uh, professions, we're talking also about GitHub and other ways to showcase the candidate's abilities in a particular field. So if the cost of looking for those types of information goes down, then we should expect. Uh, firms to engage more in outbound recruiting. And so how do we take these to the data? Considering the predictions that I told you, we were expecting to see more hunting for talents in uh, sectors where firms need high-skilled individuals, meaning high-skilled workers should be relatively more hunted than uh, non-high-skilled workers. We should also see that smaller firms engage more in hunting for talents in the data. Um, we also expect firms in higher density regions to engage more in hunting for talent, and this has to do with our prediction related to the cost of, um, of reviewing internal incoming applications. So if the cost is high in a high density area because you just get a lot more applications, then we should see firms revert to their own means of finding candidates rather than uh, spend so much time looking at inbound applications. And lastly, um, we also predict that or we were also expecting that hunting is more prevalent in sectors of the economy where there are abundant online profiles. So this has to do with this idea that if the cost of looking for information on a candidate goes down, then we should see firms engaging more in looking for candidates. And, and that means uh, sectors where it's easy for me as a worker to showcase my abilities, like for example, my programming abilities or uh, my career in STEM in general on, on a platform like LinkedIn. So um, I will show you the two, the two sets of results that we have for the two sets of data that we used. Uh, the first one, as I said, is, um, is a survey that we ran roughly a year ago, so end of January, 2020. Um, And the the survey uh, is a nationally representative sample. To our knowledge, it is the first nationally representative sample that actually includes the question, uh, have you been hunted? We don't exactly ask it like that, but, but that's the spirit. Have you been hunted by the firm as opposed to sending in an application? and so the the question that we ask is which of the following options best describes how you first got hired by your present employer and for the sake of comprehensiveness we try to be as 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 broad as possible so we the first option is of course the traditional i found the job posting and i sent in the application but we also have options related to referrals which we know are an important way uh, that the labor market moves in this space so I was referred by uh, an, an existing employee. And then we have number three and four, which we use as our measure of hunting for talent, which is a recruiter from this employer reached out to me or a head hunting firm reached out to me. So these three and four is what we consider our firm-driven search variable. And lastly, we also have, just for the sake of completeness, I reached out to a head hunting firm, which really has very little expression in, in the data we we analyzed. So this is the first set of data that that um, that we analyzed. The second set of data is, uh, of course, as you can see, this is a one-shot, uh, this is a one-shot survey. We do have a follow-up um, that um, maintains the magnitudes of the numbers we find, but we really have no historical or reliable historical perspective. So we try to complement this with burning glass technology data. This gives us two things. One is it gives us more of a history of what has been going on inside firms in terms of their decisions to hire recruiters, but it also gives us exactly the perspective that that we're looking for, which is which firms are choosing to engage in active recruiting as opposed to waiting for applications to come in. And so for this, we have a sample of a bit over 160,000 firms over eight years. So let me show you the the results for the survey. The highlight result, which is really the average for the whole whole sample, is that about 18% of workers as of end of January 2020 got their job through firms Um, driven search. So the firm actively invited them to apply. Now, as I was telling you, we we don't really have comparable historical evidence. The closest thing we found, which isn't directly comparable because it was not a nationally representative sample, was from the GSS uh, survey back in 1991, where a similar question was asked in their survey. And the number that came out of that survey was 4.2%. 4.2%. So 4.2% of workers had been uh, hunted as opposed to what we see now, which is closer to 18%. Even if we take into account that these aren't directly comparable samples, there is an order of magnitude of difference that really caught our attention. And then the heterogeneity that I mentioned in our predictions is, is what we find in the data. So the first thing is. Uh, high-skilled jobs are associated with higher incidence of firm-driven search. And we show this both in education. As you can see, I'm looking at the left set of columns in this graph, so firm-driven search, and it goes from lower lower attainment, lower education attainment to higher. You can see that the higher educational attainment, the higher the the incidence of firm-driven search. Same thing on the income dimension, meaning higher paying jobs are more hunted for. Same thing in the field, meaning more technical skills like STEM skills and even business uh, are considerably more hunted than uh, other fields like social sciences, arts, humanities. And and uh, this is the last uh, Result I'm gonna show you just in the interest of time. We also see that small firms engage more on firm-driven search. And this uh, goes in line with our predictions, meaning that uh, it seems like for firms that are more highly dependent on the job postings that they are uh, searching for, they tend to try to bypass or accelerate the process by uh, hunting for talent. And then I wanna show you one last uh, result and that's it because According to my timer, I'm getting very close to the 15 minutes. Um, when we go to the uh, burning glass technology data, which give us both a historical perspective, as I told you before, but it also gives us the uh, what it, exactly how firms are, uh, are looking at this problem uh, because it, it is based on firm job postings we look at HR job postings, and what we see that is really staggering is about a threefold increase in the last 10 years of uh, hiring for HR job postings of professionals that have recruiting skills, meaning they have recruited actively recruited people in the past. And this actually matches quite closely the increase in demand for recruiters with the social media skill which after talking to a lot of recruiters in the field, uh, it seems like what that means is recruiters that know how to look for candidates on LinkedIn and GitHub and, and platforms such as these. So let me conclude by just telling you that in this paper, we provide a theory and descriptive evidence of how the mass availability of information on workers has changed how firms hire and specifically, it has increased their investments in firm-driven search for talents. Uh, There is a lot of heterogeneity, of course, across fields, and it seems like high-skilled sectors are still um, considerably more likely to be hunted for. Workers in high-skilled sectors are considerably more likely to be hunted for. This, of course, opens questions about job polarization, uh, which we will leave for another time. Um, and at the same time, we we have this interesting evidence that firms have been increasing their capabilities in uh, recruitment, and uh, we don't really expect that to to go away anytime soon. So we're interested to see how 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 this changes over time. But it seems like it's a trend that that is here to stay. And that's it. Thank you very much. I'm sorry if I went a little over time.
1: Thank you, Ines. Thank you so much. Um, I want to draw your attention to uh, the paper by Deepak and Anquan. They have posted a file that you can download. Uh, the chat room uh, will disappear after this event. So if you would like to download the file, uh, you need to do that before the chat room closes. All right, Daniel, you are the fourth speaker.
4: Um, can you hear me OK? Um. Great. So um, thank you. Thank you, Ines. Um, I'm really excited to share this project with you all and continue the conversation from prior presentations. Um, I think there are really interesting connections to be made. And I have to warn you, uh, my project is a little bit more depressing (laughs) and and I think they'll be uh, clear pretty soon. So uh, we've been hearing a lot about American carnage in the past four years, and perhaps this is a better picture. But when it comes to American manufacturing employment, um, Carnage captures it just about right, that in the 20 years since 1998, um, US lost about 5 million jobs in the manufacturing sector, uh, even while the output has consistently grew. And this phenomenon is often called jobless growth. And this And this precipitous fall uh, is is probably the single biggest factor behind um, America's choice of its 45th president and has been linked to other serious social consequences including falling marriage rate, um, the number of children living under poverty, uh, drug abuse, and even increased incidences of suicide. So I think understanding what's behind this fall has become one of the most pressing questions of our time. So academics differ in their diagnosis with some pointing to China and others pointing to automation um, or information technologies that facilitate offshoring to China. Um, but when it comes to solution, we have this really, really rare agreement among politicians, practitioners, and even academics that we need to accelerate innovation, that it's, it's about sort of picking up our speed and is making the technological advances is faster. In this project, um, I examined whether this innovation-led revival of American manufacturing jobs will work. Um, so a lot of great minds, uh, certainly much greater than mine, have taken a shot at this question. So I thought I would approach it from a slightly different angle, um, angle that I know a little bit about. So from the perspective of labor market mobility, but I differ from prior presentations by, by Ines and Deepa and in that I'm less interested in hiring, but whether it's flip side uh, firing and can innovation save American manufacturing jobs? A short preview? Oh, not really. At least not without making the labor market more flexible and making it easy to fire people. I, that's the ugly side of labor market, I think. So I think we all agree that innovation is key to economic growth. And today, I will follow Tease. I'll be very TCN today, hopefully more, more TCN than David Tease himself. And break the innovation process into two subcomponents. Um, technological invention, followed by commercialization. The distinction, I think, is simple enough. The invention part largely centers around R&D activities and discovering something useful. Patents are probably the most tangible outputs here. Um, Then they must be embedded into a product, manufactured in a large scale, and marketed and distributed. Um, Most of the job creations, um, at least in terms of headcounts, it's about the manufacturing part. And what's really important here is that there used to be this very tight coupling between invention and post-invention production. So commercializing technological inventions, it's it's, it's a complex learning process that requires, um, I mean, many, many annoying rounds of going back and forth between inventors and engineers on the production floor. So even as firms aggressively outsource and offshore more routine activities, uh, think of call centers. So this adjustment requirement Uh, rewarded close coordination uh, over uh, access to cheap resources and kept the investments to commercialize new inventions um, in the US and actually typically right across the street in close proximity to the location of the invention, hence the tight coupling. But um, let me give you an important example of this coupling breaking down. Um, So if everyone could pick up uh, their phone and flip it over, I mean, you're probably seeing this. It's something we've seen many, many times, designed by Apple in California, assembled in China, and more more generally, invented in U.S., manufactured someplace else. So it's not really about this part, although there's so much insecurity about that at the moment, about losing technological leadership to China. And it's certainly happening in some sectors, but if you look at at least the number of patents or R&D spending, um, U.S. inventive activity is doing just fine. Uh, It's really about, when it comes to job loss, jobless growth, it's really about the failure to convert technological inventions into domestic production. It's about losing that tight coupling. And I'll show you that it has become really difficult to fire people in the US. And it is this rigidity um, in the labor market that led to the jobless growth, that led to the loss of this tight coupling. And I mean, I don't need to tell this audience that innovation is disruptive and requires a lot of hiring and firing. And I mean, companies before, they co-located invention production because they wanted to go after that rapid coordination and flexible adjustments. But if you take that away by making firing more expensive, farmers are much better off going someplace else. Um, and now that invention and production are decoupled, I mean, it doesn't really it doesn't matter how much we subsidize R&D, how good we are at, how better, uh, we become at innovating. It, it, will, it, will create, it will create a bunch of billionaires, 10 or 20 of them, but it won't create that many jobs. So, I mean, the idea that flexible production is critical to uh, commercializing invention, um, not exactly revolutionary, um, not exactly um, exciting, but turns out separating the two is really difficult uh, because they're interdependent. Um, and I'll tell you shortly how I, uh, brilliantly achieved this task that no one has pulled off before. Um, but why is it difficult? So uh, even, even when you have an exogenous shock that affects the production only and not R&D, the shock ends up traveling upstream and affecting farm R&D activities anyway. So when it becomes more expensive to fire folks, um, firms redirect their R&D uh, to less disruptive projects even if they're of lower quality. I mean, we've seen this interdependency under many different names, um, but T's calls it co-specialization, um, where complementary assets of uh, specialized fit invention and invention specialized fit complementary assets. So let me very quickly outline the intuition a bit uh, with uh, using a regression specification. So let me start with an exogenous shock, firms' ability to fire people. So. For for, um, for some ugly historical reasons, uh, U.S. maintained a doctrine called employment at will. Um, this basically allowed firms to fire employees at any time without any advance notice. So the firing cost was close to theoretic zero. But starting in the 70s, um, the state Supreme Courts, uh, so each state uh, have adopted common law exceptions. Um, it's called, uh, the most important one is called implied contract exception, or let me just call them IC for today that restricted an employer's ability to fire at will and made it much more expensive to fire employees. So IC here is a binary variable set to one if a state adopts IC by ERT. And the dependent variable is firm, uh, firm employment growth, measured it as year to year percentage change in the number of firm employees. And for invention, um, let me use patent-based proxies of technological invention. So if you look at how invention affects firm growth, Um, You expect beta 1 to be positive, that invention leads to growth. You also expect the interaction between invention and IC, or increased firing cost, to have a negative effect on employment growth. So beta should negatively moderate beta 1. Again, I think that's pretty intuitive enough. But the complication is that IC also ends up affecting invention, the nature of invention. So, I mean, to put in the language of reviewer number two, um, you know, our best friend, Invention is endogenous to IC. So, so IC induces, introduces a bias towards incremental inventions that minimize firing costs. So the, so the key challenge here is that we will see that beta three is negative, but it's unclear if it's because it's, uh, it's making inventions to be more incremental and of lower quality or because it decreases the investment in post-invention commercialization. So, so the decoupling I want to prove. So the challenge is that somehow I need to hold invention as constant as possible and isolate how I see effects the translation of invention production. So let me do that by looking at the unique institutional features of the R&D process. So let me start at the patent level. And I think I will be done in two or three minutes. So when an inventor first applies for a patent, a patent application must provide sufficient detail so that all of the methods needed to practice the invention are well known. It's called a test of enablement. That government will give you monopoly protection, but in exchange, you have to disclose everything about the invention. So if you look at the administ- so administrative process of getting a patent and overlaid with the actual underlying inventing, firms are more or less done with the, the inventing by the time they apply a patent because they have to disclose everything. And afterwards they start working on commercializing them. So depending on when the firm is hit with this uh, employment protection law or IC, we have three categories of shock. Or we have three categories of patents. So first there are patents that were both applied and issued before IC. Um, and for these pa- for patents, IC affected neither r and d nor production. And I think you, you see where this is going. So for second there are patents where IC came after the patent application, but before its issuance. And for these patents, um, IC has little effect on R&D or development, but affected pro- affects production and production only. And I'll call them interim patents. And third, um, there are patents that are both applied and issued after IC. For these patents, um, IC affected both the development and the production. So let me call them post. And my entire empirical strategy is rest, uh, it focuses on comparing interim and pre-patents, which allows me to isolate how increased cost of firing affects production and production only. Um, So if when I look at how IC affects patent characteristics, um, let me start with the pre-patents. So for patents that were both applied and granted before IC, IC doesn't affect any of their technological characteristics, how original it is, how novel it is, or how many citations it receives. And also does not affect its market value. For post patents, of so the pot, uh, patents that come after uh, after IC, IC decreases originality, novelty, citations, and also and also the market value by five point six percent. The really interesting part is the interim patents. So the IC doesn't affect any of its technological characteristics, but manages to decrease its market value by point seven percent anyway. So that's the value loss that's coming from being slower in manufacturing and producing them, producing the invention. Um, now onto to the real research question. So how does it affect, uh, how does it trend, how does it get to jobless growth? So let me take a very similar empirical approach and look at a short time window immediately after IC adoption. Um, so basically when firms are working to commercialize the interim patents that I just showed you and So my sample is the universe of U.S. public firms between 1970 and 2000. Um, And I find that a 10% increase in the number of patents uh, increases employment by about 4%, but uh, but IC takes away this positive effect by 85% and the negative effects are driven by uh, fast moving sectors um, and that require rapid commercialization, sectors that cannot be readily offshored and patents that contain radical technologies. I think that's uh, also intuitive. So when I gradually restrict the post window, so once I make it, uh, once I start my focusing on the interim patents, the effects become larger. And But some farms firm, are somehow able to undo this negative effect from IC by, they're able to undo about half of it over time. And how are they able to undo this? First, I find that firms invest more in capital. So before, when I showed you, I showed you that this used to be negative for for employment, for capital is positive. So we see strong evidence of labor capital substitution. Firms also seem to be going abroad. So now they're offshoring, that they're acquiring a lot more, but entirely in foreign countries and they're acquiring manufacturing firms. So they seem to be relocating their manufacturing assets from US to some other place. And I find an analogous stronger pattern with respect to JVs. Um, I'll wrap up. Um, So I think that the the decoupling is interesting and has many important implications policy-wise and theoretically. But just one point I wanna make is that we need to be much more tempered uh, in our belief that technological advances can fix our problems. I think we have this idea that technology will fix uh, a lot of things going forward. But at least they no longer create jobs, even while increasing productivity and firm profits and you know creating billionaires. And unfortunately, I think so many of our social problems are coming from the lack of jobs. So thank you, um, Martin. It's all yours.
5: All right. Thank you very much.
3: So let me share
5: my Absolutely. screen. Okay. Can you guys see my screen? All right. So, thank you very much. So, thank you for the opportunity <clears throat> to discuss these papers. Uh, this was a great, uh, very interesting set of papers. So thank you again, Daniel, for organizing this uh, wonderful symposium. And uh, as I said, it was really, really a pleasure to read these four papers and have the opportunity to discuss them. So I'll start with the first one with Maria Alex, and um, and I will. Sorry, I have some a little bit of an issue here. Okay. So um, so key idea is here to uh, identify the effect of proximity on um technological adoption in the context of startup co space uh, so what i liked about this paper the identification was very very strong and uh, if you think about what the kind of the empirical analysis i think this is really a cutting edge of what's sort of happening in this space i really like the uh, identification of the threshold differ, uh, distance which i think was quite unique going back to the prior literature and of course the identification comes here from uh, from random assignments. So it's very, very tight in terms of the causal effects. So in terms of some comments here, uh, I think there would be, there's a lot of work. And of course, I don't know all the details, but there's a lot of work in this space, including the co-authors of this paper. So what I think this to me, what is the contribution of this paper is adding more granularity because you're really carefully identifying that threshold. You're, have lots of sort of fine, uh, fine level granular data. I wonder if that can be sort of translated into more of a, you know, what is the kind of the theoretical contribution, how that's changing the literature. So it is right now, it's kind of framed as a really an empirical, very important empirical contribution, but I was kind of uh, you know, it'd be great to to really bolster it a little bit more. You have a little bit of that uh, organizational learning connections, but I thought that that was not entirely clear to me how that works out because it's right. This is these are very small firms that at the end of the day. Uh, it's about the interactions of individuals who are then making decisions as well about what technologies to adopt. So I think the organizational learning element, you know, if you want to go there, it needs to be fleshed out more. You know, what is the organizational learning element of the story? So some empirical comments. I think there's a number of interesting results. For, for instance, the result about female and how they differ from Male uh, interactions are very interesting because it turns negative, so maybe something can be said there. Uh, I also thought about some of these interactions. I think what also could be happening. So of course the, uh, the the treatment is random, but what is sort of what is at risk? So the technologies that firms have to begin with potentially correlate with how close or far they are from each other. In other words, if you have companies that are very very close, well maybe they are also already are using technologies that are very similar so as a result of that the likelihood of adopting the partner technology is lower so i don't think it's really a causal problem it's just an interpretation of those uh, inverted u-shaped relationships or what sort of you know how we would interpret the results i think matters and then when it comes to the the instrumented performance results, they're very, very interesting as well. But I was thinking a little bit more about that. I, mean, I think they matter quite a bit in your results. So I thought, well, maybe what we're seeing here is what is called a heterogeneous response problem that... Uh, The people who are exposed or firms or individuals who are sort of better, unobservably better, are sort of more responsive to these uh, inputs. So if if a worse firm exposed to treatment will be less likely to adopt it and better firm in response to seeing the, the treatment will be more likely to adopt it. So there still could be something like that going on, especially when it comes to performance regressions. And I think that maybe some, including some discussion about that would be very helpful. So I would not, so I don't think you're doing that, but would be a little bit more careful about the, uh, the performance regressions and what we are sort of getting uh, out of this as an instrument because that heterogeneous response issue could be more pronounced in the context that you have. Other than that, I think it was really cool, very interesting paper. Really like the, the fine, fine level of analysis, which I think is going uh, beyond beyond the prior work. So yeah, excellent paper so the next paper unkwan and deepak so here full disclosure i am on a com- on the committee okay i'm on the dissertation committee for unkwang so i'm not a i'm not an outside observer here and i have seen this paper before i provided comments before and i'm also uh, illinois alum so you know this is uh, connections and multiple levels here so i i kind of will comment here or what is the uh, what is maybe my my thoughts about the latest version of the paper, and maybe some some suggestions or thoughts? So, what I like about this paper, of course, uh, this is very clean, very careful. There's a lot of uh, careful analysis and ca- careful discussion going on. It's also very think, uh, very interesting to think about. If the results here are counterintuitive, as Deepak was saying, because we're you know prior work sort of think about restrictions on mobility as improving, uh, as, as, as impeding knowledge flows. And here we kind of see the opposite results. So that's a, there's a very interesting sort of theoretical tension here. And it's sort of useful to think about why is that happening and, and which contexts are enabling that kind of spillovers sort of to occur um, what i thought about reading the, the latest version of the paper is that i think it's maybe a little bit more in the paper than in presentation there's sort of you hanging your head on one mechanism well there may be other mechanisms as well and you're talking a lot about the outbound mobility and restrictions but there's also effect on the inbound mobility because other firms if, if you are using non-competes that in the focal environment also other firms are more likely using non-competes and that can potentially restrict your ability to hire as well. So there's like an inbound effect as well, and I think it goes in the same direction. But it may be helpful to think about uh, think about that as well. There's also, I think maybe you, Deepak you did a, a nice job discussing sort of the literature, but I think in the paper, I don't think there, there could be more could be done, sort of building up the tension with prior literature and maybe trying to reconciling it and and more of a, you know how we're seeing the mobility being bad for uh, restricting mobility being bad for spillovers. here we see the opposite effect i think that's sort of the punchline of the paper so maybe that could be brought up brought up a little bit more in the paper i think the presentation you actually uh well, well, you were you were doing that so when it comes to experiment when it comes to empirics i think there is also very interesting that we have here the michigan experiment and we also have very consistent results using the indexes and this is it's right now it's being used as a robustness test, but I thought this could be elevated a lot more because there's not many paper that are, have really robust results and are showing full set of results, both sort of the cross sectional within state comparison using the indexes and Michigan experiment at the same time. So I thought that would be uh, useful to sort of elevate those results more. There's also, I think you talk about it in the paper, there's also this concern that there's something strategic going about citations and and concern could be that post Michigan experiment, post Mara, maybe firms are more uh, careful or more sort of cautious about each other and they expect more litigation. So they're going to cite each other's patents more as a kind of a defensive strategy. And the way you address it in the paper is that you are uh, taking out examiner, edit citations and using these indexes as opposed to just MARA. So I think it works for the robustness test. But again, I think because it's important, I would sort of suggest elevating uh, elevating that more but overall yeah it's a it's a great paper as all the other papers of uh, young kwan's dissertation and he's he's an amazing uh, amazing student who is on the market amazing candidate so if you jo- if you guys have uh jobs job openings i highly recommend uh taking a look at his a look at his dissertation and job market papers so a little bit of a plug here all right so the third paper in and rembrandt so this the key idea is here the high skill workers, a demand for high skill workers and lower cost of search will lead to greater investments in talent surge, which you call, uh, call the outbound recruitment. And you also build a model and a theory that makes those predictions that Ines was discussing. So uh, what I like here again, very very clear, very careful, very nicely written paper, novel data, great survey. There's also data triangulation. You have multiple sources of data which you're nicely bringing together. Uh, so that's very good. Uh, there's also in terms of my uh, comments on the theory side, uh, there's a little bit of a, so there's a, there's a framing in terms of human capital a specific human capital. I thought that could be fleshed out in more detail. If you again, want to link to that literature more um depends on where you're sending the paper. Same for the model. I thought the model was very nice and very clean, nicely done, but you're almost making the theoretical predictions before the model and then model kind of comes up with the same set of predictions. So do we need both? Again, it will probably depend on the journal where this is being sent to, but overall it's kind of fits uh, nicely together. Uh, when reading that paper, I thought was what is really interesting is how changing, and I don't think it's really fleshed out in the paper, but maybe that's a paper number two. I thought it's very interesting to think about how changing the nature of the product markets is it just changing the demand in the labor market. I think you're touching upon these issues a little bit, but of course, limitations of the data may not allow you to explore all of that. But I thought that's really the fundamentally interesting question. If we have, let's say more winner takes all markets or markets which are now more global or more sort of interdependent, that has some implication for how people are recruited. And I thought that's a really interesting tension that you know could be fleshed out perhaps in, in future work. There's also a little bit of a size prediction here, which I thought could be, uh, it's, you have it in the data, but it could be maybe theoretically. Are uh, better connected with the others, so right now, as Ines, as you said, this is more of a descriptive focus, and this point, which is fine to establish the facts. Uh, what I thought is really also interesting. There is the professional headhunting, and if I am correct, if I am interpreting the tables correctly, the uh, professional headhunting is, seems to be driving some of the results in many of the tables. So if you look at, uh, if you look at just the recruiters reaching out. So those uh, seem to be more stable in some of these tables. And I thought that's an interesting result and maybe we need to flesh it out more. You know, why is that the case? And of course, in the lower skills, you will not expect a lot of professional headhunting occurring. Maybe in some of the lower positions, you would not expect a lot of the professional headhunting occurring. So it is in the more in the higher skills. So is that something that uh, maybe would, require more discussion or more analysis. You know, what is the relationship between uh, between the, those two categories? Because they seem to make a difference. It's not sort of occurring to the same extent in both of the categories for, for most of these variables that you're looking at, not for all of them. So, and it's the same, you know, how it's done in the prior work? Does it, you know, is it the same categories, how they can be, how, how these things were interpreted in prior work? I thought that would be nice to discuss some of those things in the paper. Um, second thing is, I think some manipulation checks would be helpful. How did the respondent interpret the difference between referrals and recruiter interactions? Maybe if you have a high-skilled worker, you know, how did they sort of may, maybe start with a referral, but then you have they have more interactions. So they, how it get, then get gets categorized? So some conversation about those type of questions, we know how people feel about how people interpret these questions would be helpful. Overall, again, very, very strong paper, uh, very interesting to read. So the last paper, Daniel. So the key idea is we have these implied contract exceptions legislation made firing costlier. And that is sort of leading to the decoupling of innovation and manufacturing and sort of lead led to the offshoring and moving of the facilities. Uh, abroad, so so. What I like about this is very comprehensive paper. Very very important implications, as Daniel was showing us with his uh, pictures of Trump at the beginning, which we are, uh, which, which we can all relate to the uh, uh, you know the tensions and the relief and all of that. So so, I think what is really interesting here is that it is very very important question that he's. It's a big question that he's trying to address here. And, uh, and it has important policy implications. So some comments here, uh, I think it's because this is a big problem, this is a big question. Maybe it's better to start smaller and maybe start sort of piece by piece as opposed to attacking the whole thing at the same time. Uh, I thought there's many moving parts in the paper, so maybe there's like one element and maybe try to pin it down and then move on to the next one. Um, there, was, there was also in the paper, there's a lot of discussion about moving from incremental to radical as a result of these IC, legisl- IC uh, rulings. Uh, that was maybe, I need- wasn't entirely clear to me you know, how those mechanisms sort of play out. On the empirical side, I think the same with the pre, interim, post patent differences. I think I, I can see where you're going with that, but I think we need more, you know, how more explanations. And maybe that's the one piece that you focus on first and, and sort of flesh it out more. Uh, I was also thinking, and this is something which maybe, so there's multiple prior studies that have looked at these. I IC, see uh, IC, IC adoption as exogenous. But I could also imagine a, a sort of a situation in which you have people getting fired and plans are being closed. And that, you know, as a result of that, we're getting lawsuits in the state and then it bubbles up to the Supreme Court and Supreme Court makes some sort of ruling. So I th- You know, maybe this has been addressed in prior work, but I thought the assumption of exogeneity because of the nature of your analysis in your context requires a lot more thought. You know, is it really exogenous? You need to get deeper, get deeper into the processes within within these states because I think the reverse channel is very plausible as well, right? It's the, it's the offshoring, it's the closures, it's the people getting fired, which actually is, is causing some of the adoption of these, of these rulings and, and, and you know maybe not, but I think that sort of requires more, more discussion there. Overall, again, very, very cool, very important. Really enjoyed reading it. So thank you very much. This is all from me.
1: Thank you, Martin. Well, we are uh, just one minute away uh, from our allotted time this uh, session. So I would encourage you all to reach out to the authors if uh, you would like to continue the discussion. Um, And so we don't have any room for uh, Q and A, but there was quite a bit of uh, 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 exchanges uh, on the chat room. So, uh, Last chance to download anything from the chat room if you want. Um, Otherwise, uh, join me to thank our presenters today. Thank you all. We will see you at the next STR event. Bye now.